The information contained in this podcast is provided for your general information only. It does not give medical advice or engage in the practice of medicine. This massage podcast under no circumstances recommends particular treatment for specific individuals and in all cases recommends that you consult your physician or local treatment center before pursuing any course of treatment. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Massage Podcast. Happy Happy New New Year. Year. Yes, um, I think this is episode 32. Three. Three. Um, I'm your host, Dawn Adkins, and I'm here today with Elaine Kalinda, our massage expert, and Jorge Cisneros, our producer. You can um, contact us if you ever need to. You can find us on massagepodcast.com, our website. You can contact us on our contact page. You can also leave us a text message or a voicemail at 303-656-9860 and come see us during our live recordings on our website. And of course, follow us on Facebook and Twitter and get the word out on the Massage Podcast. So we have a guest in-house today and his name is Michael Rosenpyros. He is from Niwot and Sarasota, Florida, lives in both places. He's a chiropractor. And he's here to share with us all kinds of wisdom. That's right, baby. I mean, from way back. <laughs> all kinds My, of fun stuff. So, Michael, when did you get started in this wonderful field of uh, chiro- mixing chiropractic, massage therapy? So, which w- did you do first? And tell us about your background there. Okay, well, actually, what I did first was medical anthropology. Oh, and cool. I started studying culture and health and sickness and what it states about their worldview and their ideas on spirituality and those kinds of things. And from there, it led me to wanting to actually become a hands-on practitioner of some kind. And I chose chiropractic because, well, my grandfather was a chiropractor. So that's really how I got introduced to it. Um, From there, I started a practice in New York for a bunch of years. And then after that, I moved to Florida where my uh, wife and I bought, bought a massage school, the Sarasota School of Massage Therapy. It's been around a long time. That school opened when? 1978. Yeah, way back. That's the year I went to the Swedish Institute. So that's 33 years. Yeah, yeah. I I bought it in the year 1990 and I ran it for 10 years. Uh, My wife passed on and I couldn't do both things, but Mm -hmm. I continue to work there. I continue to teach there. To this day. To this day, mm-hmm. yes. I've been teaching anatomy there for over 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and while I was there and while I was still running the school, a good one of my friend teachers there uh, got involved in Thai massage and she wanted to go to Thailand. We sent her to Thailand. She came back. She was studying with Arthur Lambert, a great old name in massage therapy. He actually introduced uh, uh, Thai massage therapy probably to the entire East Coast, if not the entire Southeast. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, she studied with him. And at the time I was looking to expand my own practice. Um, I practice kinesiology. I practice a cranial sacral form of chiropractic. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that cranial sacral form, they emphasize the need to relax the arms, shoulders, hips, feet, ankles, all the peripheral tensions mm-hmm. uh, that are there so that by the time you get to the spine and the cranium, things are already relaxed and you can focus on the uh, central column. So I was always doing 
peripheral adjustments, peripheral manipulations, adding massage to uh, my work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when massage, uh, when Michelle, my friend teacher, came in back from Thailand and practiced that on me, I was blown away. Right. And um, it just did so much for me. I can't even, you know, I'm still assessing uh, mm-hmm. what, its, what its effect actually is. Um, but I've been also a yoga practitioner, which mm-hmm. I have been for the last 40 years. So they say Thai massage is yoga for lazy people. They will call that that. Uh, you know, I have always have mixed feelings about yeah. that. It, lo, a lazy man's yoga, they'll call it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Thai massage does come from a yoga um, Ayurvedic tradition. Uh, Buddha's uh, physicians actually brought it over after he passed on. And so their language of their... Uh, work and the language of what they're working with are energy fields, much like you'd see in Chinese medicine or in Japanese systems. Traditional, yeah. But their language working with these systems is more from Ayurveda. So they have a central column called the Sushumna, which yeah. is just right out of yoga. And they also have a uh, lateral columns and channels right. called Ida Pingala. And so their language and their assessment is out of yoga. Mm-hmm. Um, and I appreciate that. Of and course. I absolutely appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I ended up taking Michelle's uh, series and I became certified in massa- uh, time massage over 10 years ago. Probably and you're teaching it now. And now I'm teaching and, it. And I have to say that I saw a couple of your students today and in the class and we were doing just a full body massage and she said, can I do practice Thai massage? I said, do whatever turns you on. She looked, she'd taken two classes from you and she looks like an expert. I don't, uh, Michael, you got it across to her. And I also think she's also kind of natural yes. at it, but I really enjoyed watching uh, her do, she did the whole routine. Well, the, one of the things that helps in learning Thai massage, of course, is knowing some yoga. Mm-hmm. Because the body mechanics of time massage is my fav- my personal favorite part of it. Uh, as a chiropractor, you stand. As a massage therapist, you stand. You mm-hmm. lean. You bend. You, right. And you're always standing and bending over and hard flexing the at the hips. Mm-hmm. Flex- hopefully, not flexing at the hips. But <laughs> right. of course, everybody does because mm-hmm. most people don't sit in a tai chi stance when they're doing uh, massage. Right. Uh, but time massage uh, is done on the floor. Or it's done on a table. Mm-hmm. But when it's done on the floor, which is how I prefer... There, yeah, uh, she brought a futon into the room and everything. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of kneeling, there's a lot of lunging, there's right. a lot of squatting. And all of that is uh, before I actually do the adjustment. So the actual standing over and flexing portion of my body is minimal mm-hmm. uh, relative to uh, what it used to be before I took this on. And... I don't, I don't know how chiropractors can stand standing all day now right. that I've done this. Right. Um, the, uh, the other uh, advantage to, that the students would have is they have some foundation in shiatsu as well. Right. Um, their first introduction at BCMT is shiatsu mm-hmm. uh, in terms of oriental body work. And so they're familiar with meridian lines. They're familiar with um, visualizing and the energy. channels. And energy. Mm-hmm. And Being the comfortable with that. And grounding um, themselves in those yeah, things. Yeah, so, and the students are very enthusiastic oh, and it's very simple it. technique and um, it involves a lot of movement of every joint. So as a chiropractor who always pays attention to diagnostics, I find that by the time I'm done with a Thai session, I've done a complete orthopedic analysis of the entire musculoskeletal system. Mm-hmm. And that is, and, it, and that is secondary to my intent, but it's mm-hmm. there entirely. And how many classes does it 
do you, is they, people can get certified with your classes in Thai massage? I haven't reached the certification point now. Okay. I'm, I'm experimenting on timing. I'm experimenting on how much to present so that people aren't filled with overkill. Mm-hmm. Uh, the certification program I took was 64 hours. Mm. It was four weekends, 16 hours apiece. Oh, that's significant. Yeah. You know, Thai massage. Um, yeah, it's now, not just a, a quick weekend and you're done. Yeah. No. And since I'm a since I'm actually new at teaching it, I don't think I would do more than a uh, 15 or 20 hour class myself mm-hmm. uh, and then when it came more to a, more to more advanced movements uh, then I'd invite people in who who really were familiar with it as you get more advanced one of the things they do is to work with herbal packs to stimulate and to balance the energies right. and working not just with their hands but working with warmed herbal pa- uh, packs mm-hmm. uh, which has to be wonderful um, but the outcome and the intent of uh, a Thai session is the same as you would have in an hour of a yogic session, which mm-hmm. is to balance the prana. It's not looking for uh, specific meridians to sedate or tonify like you would see uh, in a Chinese or Japanese system, per se. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a full body balancing um, uh, uh, intent. Um, and so as a yoga practitioner, I find it charges the body's energy and so that by the time I actually do the adjustments they actually are so much more uh, facilitated and they hold much longer and the time massage seems to absolutely amplify the effect of the adjustment mm-hmm. um, and so I see people less and which mm-hmm. is also my intent uh-huh. yeah <laughs> because you live in two places you know yeah. I'll be back in a month and I'll see you then and you'll be okay till then well I have to say right here and now that Mike, I've been to a lot of chiropractors over the last 30 years or plus, and um, Michael's adjustments are like nobody else's in that the one where you, you're, you've got your hand, where you just come over and you squeeze and I lie back down. I mean, those adjustments are happening all the way down to T1, 2, and 3. Those you, I usually only get in the upper thoracic and just the movement, the preparation, the massage that you throw in, all of the little things, um, it's some of the best chiropractic I've ever experienced. So well, I, I just have to say that here and now because there are chiropractic and there is chiropractic, you know. And your adjustments are just so smooth and comfortable and not so scary, which I like. You know, yeah, my body likes yeah, it too. And they do tend scary. to last longer. <laughs> Well, that's because been, of that. That's my experience with chiropractic as well. It can be scary and mm-hmm. it ne- doesn't necessarily the have to be. The first one I had, it's amazing that I ever went back for any others. <laughs> it was very, that Dr. Sarandon, Saran, in New York, Sar- he was very big and very Greek and very popular. Well, Everybody <laughs> swore by him and he's, he almost broke my wrist, I think. Yeah. Wow. It, it was too aggressive. Is applied kinesiology a part of your practice as well? Yes, it is, and I love it. I Talk love about that because that is so so not taught enough. You it, know, yeah. I I wish that there was a way I could. I don't know. Is there any way we could learn we'll set that up or some any classes? classes? Yeah. Applied kinesiology is. We just have to create it. Oh well, I actually have a program already set up and approved by the Department of Continuing Education in awesome. Florida. Okay. Uh, so yes, I could definitely put that. Bring together it here. here. Yeah. Let's do it. Um, kinesiology was uh, presented to me in in chiropractic school, and I graduated in '83. Um, so at that time, kinesiology was relatively new. 
right? A lot of the around self, here in the states, yeah, yeah, all over in the United States, because Goodhart had only started uh, his work in the uh, uh, mid '60s, later '60s. He was involved with the Olympic teams. Was one of the first chiropractors to actually be involved with Olympic teams. Um, so we were presented at least 25 different techniques with, at New York Chiropractic College, which was uh, wonderful because there everyone is resonates with a different uh, body work form, as all of you are probably familiar with already. Um, but I like the fact that it paid attention to muscles and muscle balance and muscle imbalance. And organs. And organs and meridians and circulation and nutrition mm-hmm. and all the things that are involved are the different levels of our body's existence. That's right. Um, and... Um, so I was very attracted to applied kinesiology early. And in fact, studying kinesiology was the only way I could learn the muscles. I tried memorizing. Mm-hmm. I tried cards. I tried the coloring book. I tried all those. All those things were just wasted on me. Absolutely okay. wasted on me. Uh, but when I actually learned each different test and could feel the effect and mm-hmm. see the effect, and so could they, mm-hmm. which is even equally important mm-hmm. because I, I use kinesiology mostly uh, in the beginning for diagnostic purposes. Purposes. I, in my initial exam, I go through about 80 different muscles individually in all four joints and spine. And then from there, I get a list of muscles that are weak, and I get a sense of why these imbalances are there. Uh, you get a sense of which muscles are weak, and then I go through the session, and then I go back and test the weak muscles. And they're usually, most of them, strong in, uh, for the most part. And that's something you can know. Mm-hmm. which is equally Absolutely. important it's because great it's like, yeah. instead of me saying, well, you're better. And, the, and then you say, well, I don't feel better. It's like, well, who are you going to believe me or you? Yeah. you know, <laughs> that, that can get pretty, that can be at a very obnoxious conversation. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. But you know, if the person sees they had 12 muscles that weren't holding either because of pain or structural imbalance, then when we're done, 10 out of those 12 are holding Mm-hmm. Then they already know something happened. And so, you know, I talk about how healing, you know, is not instantaneous most of the time. Every now and then there are these miracle pops and people go, oh, you're so wonderful. And I said, no, you were just in the right place. Mm-hmm. Uh, because generally real healing takes time. Tissues need to re- reform. They need to restructure. Um, but mm-hmm. kinesiology gives me extra things to do when those when those remaining two muscles are not holding. And so it gets into more subtle energy imbalances, more the uh, right brain, left brain, structural imbalances, uh, things like that uh-huh. that I absolutely love. I love detective work. I love neurology. I love history. I love mm-hmm. economics and political economy. Um, and I love literature. So I'm, you know, I'm kind of an airhead that way. Well. But Speaking the, of literature, I want to hear before we're done about your book and where that's at and where, you know, mm-hmm. how that came about, what prompted you to write it, you know. Yes. Um, because uh, we're going to be, you're working with your publish, your publicist on that at this point, right? Yes. Last at, yes. At this, at this point, the name, uh, my book, which is called Life in a Spacesuit <laughs> or Anatomy for Mystics, um, is, uh, it started off as notes compiled for years as an anatomy instructor and as a yoga instructor. And over time, the more you study anatomy and the more you study yoga, you see the parallels and the overlaps. So anatomy teaches seven endocrine glands and yoga teaches seven chakras. And they're all, both say that that both, both of those traditions say that these energy centers or organs are located in the same exact place. Mm-hmm. So in Eastern 
weirdness approximates Western weirdness, I can't help but pay attention. Mm -hmm. So a lot of my book is a synthesis of Eastern and Western ways of looking at the body and then taken from the quantum physicists who talk about simultaneous realms that exist uh, in different magnifications. So we have an atomic world that's running at a speed and a rate and, at a, and for a intention that no one knows. And yet those are the foundation of every cellular person. And I consider cells as people. So there's a whole chapter on cells as people mm -hmm. because I like to think I'm doing everything. But really, I'm only doing what A, my body lets me do and B, my body informs me either that I'm doing or I need to be doing. And that's it. Mm -hmm. I'm on a need to know basis with my own body. When I go into a swimming pool, it's cold. And when I realize my body realizes it's not dangerous, I no longer sense or... I no longer perceive the cold, but that cold is still there. Mm -hmm. My body figures I don't need to know that anymore, so it just shuts down the perception. Mm. The sensation is still going. The body is still monitoring the cold, but I don't need to know that. So it says you don't need to know that, and all of a sudden, I don't know that. And so I like to think I live in free will and all this stuff, but I understand the different levels of me making me and cells are definitely the people making anything that I do possible mm -hmm. from movement to talking to to everything in fact when you look at what the body can do the sum total of it uh, is that the body can secrete glands and contract muscles and that's it mm -hmm. now we thinking is or isn't part of that process and that's a theological question yeah. which is much that's bigger than what I need to get into. Especially Americans. Yes. We're taught to we're separate. We're Greeks, we could do that. <laughs> you know, we're, we're, we're taught to separate um, body, mind, and, and spirit, if it's even there, talked about. But we do, and that's why we have, when we study anatomy, like the just a little bit you just said, highly intellectual. It, I really ha even had to focus to, say, to get the hold of the concepts. And these concepts can be so simple and so complex at the same time. But to be a person who can take those complex com concepts and explain them to the lay person and to, st to students who are studying all kinds of hands-on or, you know, in healthcare in general is really wonderful. And I still hear your students talk about how your class was the most interesting class they've ever had, never had a class like that, because it, the, the way you connect those concepts, you know, every day to more highly intellectual things that we don't even think about. And it's not just a question of intellectuality also. It's a question of the mind is being asked to do a very difficult thing in, in any sentence you read in anatomy or physiology. Mm -hmm. Because if I tell you that the biceps muscle is consisting of 40 to 50 um, motor units of myofibers whose main protein is actin, now I have just made your mind do three magnifications. We can all see a biceps muscle. We all know what that looks like. We, we say make a muscle and the elbow bends and we make a muscle. Um, but then your mind in the same sentence has to go down to nanometers and look at the size of muscle spindles all bundled together mm -hmm. with, with thousands of little neuron endings. Mm -hmm. And then you look inside the muscle and now you're looking at the electric level 
level of existence. You're looking at the atomic level of it. And I don't even mm-hmm. know how small that is right. because I can't think that small. There's a uh-huh. certain level where thinking as small is as difficult as thinking 40 billion light years away. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I right. know how far Florida is from here. Right. I can see that in my mind. Right. I can almost visualize how far Greece is because that's where I like to go. My family's from there. Uh, I can't think about how far the moon is right. or the sun. Harder. And it's now difficult. when you're talking about galaxies that are away from our galaxies. and all that, forget it. Right. Now, yeah. now we're talking about lengths and distances and times to get there that are beyond my brain's comprehension. I, I've never trained it. Anyone can. Mm-hmm. Isaac Newton figured it out on his own. God right. bless him. Yeah. Um, That's what astrophysicists are for. Oh, those guys are amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, I mm-hmm. don't have the patience. Yeah. <laughs> just, but going back for a moment to applied yeah. kinesiology, yeah. this... This also, and we didn't mention it, that all of the little tests that you do and the muscles that you're asking the questions to in your diagnostics um, makes your brain that's been sleeping for a while, why those muscles are weak. It activates those parts of the brain too, which is part of the synthesis and, and how this applied kinesiology makes you well. Over a period of weeks, you really get very, you feel your body is very connected again. You know, and that parts that were sleeping have woken up in, in the brain, which is, you know, what it's all about. We all have to get to the person's brain for these treatments that we do to last. Otherwise, it's just weekly maintenance. That and, and exercising. I mean, you know, one of the things I insist on with people and talk with them about, if not insist, because, you know, we're all busy, uh-huh. is the idea of doing strengthening and flexibility mm-hmm. th- uh, things for mm-hmm. themselves. Because mm-hmm. if you're not paying attention to your self-strengthening, uh, then these patterns are all going to repeat. They just fall back into Because mm-hmm. it's, you know, life in our, uh, st- our bipedal world, standing on two legs, sitting in our sedentary life. Uh, requires us to go out of our way to challenge our bodies. So the you know we're you, our that's bodies, a good way to put it. Yeah, we yeah. have to. You know, we you have to take a walk. You have, have to, to take a walk. Do some stretching. You know, we're not we're not walking hiking to the next foraging center, which is what our bodies were designed for. Right. We're not running after antelope and stuff like that anymore. Yeah. Well, some people are. Yeah. Well, but some most people. of us aren't. Right. Most we're sitting down aren't. for hours on end and then wondering why we have back pain. Right. It's just ridiculous. And headaches mm-hmm. and and we. We don't even take the eye muscles into consideration. And one of the things about yoga and kinesiology uh, is that they focus on eye muscle movement mm-hmm. and they stress them in yoga. You have to look up as far as you can go. You have mm-hmm. to look down to your belly button. when Your neck flexing. moves farther when you use your eyes. It really does. Mm-hmm. And we're focused on a screen at work. We're focused on TV. Now we're looking at iP- uh, uh, iPhones. And cell phones and so all day. We're, we're looking at mini screens. And so our uh-huh. eyeballs. Balls are spending all day focusing uh, on these r- small regions of field, and the rest of the fields and possibilities for eye movement are not taken into consideration for anything. I've seen a lot of neck imbalance be the direct problem of eyeball muscle imbalance. Hmm. Um, so these subtle things are only brought to our attention if we're taking something like kinesiology. Um, you also see that kind of work. That right now I'm going through a series of neurology seminars with a man named Professor Carrick. 
uh, who is from Canada. He's a neurologist, and he teaches what he calls functional neurology, which is attracting chiropractors, osteopaths, MDs uh, all over the world, except for the most part in America. In the United States, uh, only chiropractors are interested because uh, MDs can't learn anything from chiropractors yet. Because mm, no, that would be a phobe. That would be a no-no. Anybody, Come on, you guys. You know, and a lot of chiropractors don't want to learn from MDs. So here yeah, we are. I know. I wish you they know, would it's boring. Bridge that gap a little more. You know, it's starting to happen. It's, it's starting to happen, and it needs to because you know we we think about other healing traditions as um, competing with each other, and mm-hmm. that's really what we have. We have competitive healing uh, practices. And we decide which one is better or worse or something silly like that when all of them have their uh, their place, th- their 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 traditional histories, mm-hmm. you know, and their they, place in the individual. The individual may need a combination, and, and very often does. Right, and different combinations uh, depending on the individual. Mm-hmm. You know, chiropractors mm-hmm. uh, when they got involved with physical therapy were taken to task by a whole group of chiropractors uh, who called themselves straight chiropractors, which I've always found a little humorous. Um, But uh, those same straight chiropractors are... Most for the most part against applied kinesiology, are uh, they not? They wouldn't be so much applied kinesiology. They'd be against um, uh, any kind of physical therapy, any kind of ultrasound, or any kind of oh, electrotherapy. Okay, I'm sorry, I see what so, you mean. What they're concerned is is that you're uh, uh, watering down the tradition by taking by doing less hands on. Okay. Um, the those that learn physical therapy who call themselves mixers now. Mm-hmm. Um, actually were uh, got this way because of the World War II uh, phenomenon that happened here. And a lot of chiropractors want to take part as physicians in uh, hospitals and whatever. Uh, for the rehabilitation? Effort, towards anything for the war effort. And okay. the only and the, they were such a non-defined, culty kind of organization in those days. In those days, yeah. That they didn't know where to put them. Eventually, they put them in rehab hospitals where physical therapists were working. And so they had exposure to a whole new field of ways to help people who are seriously in pain. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the idea that uh, any kind, anything that can help facilitate tissue um, uh, reprocessing is got to be good for people. Mm -hmm. Um, So they came from that tradition. Mm -hmm. And you'll hear chiropractors talk about, you know, uh, know, medical doctors this, and you'll hear medical doctors talk about chiropractors this, and I find it personally boring and mm-hmm. annoying and mm-hmm. in the way of actual health care in the country. We have crisis care, but we don't have health care. Mm-hmm. And a, a grand synthesis of each tradition needs to be processed and theorized and, and, and put out and honored. You know, there's no, there's no reason why a person can't get a massage and uh, body work and spinal manipulation before they are actually going into for spinal surgeries, for instance. Mm -hmm. Why not make these as protocols for most things? I can't tell you how many surgeries didn't have to happen because they came and received body work first. Mm -hmm. I also can tell you plenty that had to happen and body work was not going to help them. So we're in this gray zone where the people that are good at doing that surgery are not in... And in a parody kind of dialogue with those of us who can uh, maybe uh, transcend that and maybe avoid that. Mm-hmm. There's no, there's no appreciation. Well, that's where for they it. feel like it's competitive. You're taking, you're making people well, and they're not going to need surgery. There are plenty others out there that will. Mm-hmm. 
And that's why we, you know, we just, there's no competition in health. I think it's very unrealistic and very uh, almost immature that people keep thinking that way. It's like we're going to run out of people in pain. I don't think so. <laughs> Can we expand a little more on your book and what else you are talking about? In the, <coughs> sure, um, sure. Um, one, of the, one of the main principles of the book is that the universe itself is set on basic principles. Mm-hmm. And those principles include forces or phenomena that we could denote as complementary opposites. And I like calling them complementary opposites because they seem opposing Uh, But they're not. They're really not. They're necessary for each other's existence. They're necessary for each other's existence. So the... the, the opposition of sympathetic and that and it shows itself everywhere it shows itself in atomic structure it shows itself in our neurological system where we have a sympathetic and a parasympathetic that increases or decreases the same organ and they have to be kept in balance or the organ's not going to be working um, so these, this principle of um, complementary opposites uh, is also paired with a principle of what I call cooperation that every polar opposite is actually there to complement each other, and that's how it works. So I show how that works in the atomic level, which is the uh, e- which is the smallest realm most of us can actually visualize. Some can actually visualize. Some can actually see energy fields. Mm-hmm. I don't have that gift. Um, I personally would want that gift. That would drive me crazy. <laughs> Listening to people speak is hard enough. <laughs> if I had to see their energy fields, I'd go nuts. <laughs> Yeah. Um, the next level deals with cellular cooperation and the cell. I call them cell people in my book because if we think of them as people, they have their own. Everything about our body is prototyped in the cell. They have a skin. They have digestive organs, respiratory organs. In fact, everything we say we have as a body is prototyped as an organelle in every cell. Huh. So every cell specializes. So that Mm -hmm. the potential of a cell becomes divided into trillions of different cells. And they cooperate very carefully so that my muscles are relaxed or contracted when I need them to be. And while that's going on, my body's keeping me upright and is keeping my heart going. And it's doing all these things that are just, uh, just right for my body's metabolic level. And each cell participates in that. From there, I go to the fact that as a species, the only way we work is as a cooperative species. And I know there's a lot of mythology on how competitive we are, but human beings are only competitive in crisis. People are are only competitive and violent when uh, they've been deprived of life and energy and, and warmth in their bodies. And so the idea that humans are competitive is like saying rats will eat each other. Yeah, but you know, rats will only eat each other under incredibly horrendous circumstances. And in fact, people really do get together as people. Our problem is, in my mind, bad anthropology. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Well, you know, we don't, we see, our, we see some people as us and other people as others. Right. And that's the first mistake. Mm-hmm. On whatever level that is, yeah, right. that's the first mistake because all of us are sinking in this inc- incredible ship that we're on. And I'm not one who is fatalistic. I think we have, we have the ability and the will uh, to turn things around. And I actually expect it'll happen. Uh, I expect it because I actually believe in an innate 
harmony in this universe of complementary opposites based on cooperation. And whether we like it as a species or not, it's being shoved right into our orifices as we speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the media has really helped that. To YouTubes and television and movies over the last 20, 30 years um, has really presented the world to the world. And Good and bad. Good and bad. And that, if nothing else, it helps demystify because we, we don't really know our enemies uh, when we call them enemies. And it's not to say there aren't people we aren't in conflict with, mm-hmm. which is a true thing. Even the rabbi Jesus said, love your enemies. He didn't mean they didn't have enemies. Mm-hmm. But he also said something like, don't treat them like they're enemies. I mean, yeah. stop it. You know? Yeah, cut it out. <laughs> what, are you, what are you, Romans? <laughs> <laughs> I hope you, you probably have some humorous things in your book because well, it, it would be hard not to write something like that and not have some quips. Well, the body is such a humorous thing. The it body can is be, such oh, a, yeah. it's such a humorous oh, thing. Oh, very um, funny. And I love movies. <laughs> I actually learned English watching movies, so there's mm-hmm. a lot of quotes uh, from movies oh, and, is there? and things like that okay. in there and, and quoting great yogis and quoting great anatomists and physicists. Oh, and, I can't ra- wait to read it. Yeah, I, don't, I claim to have really made up anything. All I do is read a lot and I have just been able to synthesize the thoughts of some of the finest you know, writers that have been presented to us, mm-hmm. um, which is a lot more interesting than television. <laughs> I for agree. the most part, I except agree. for West Wing, I have to say, I, I, I still watch you, West Wing. You like that one? I watch it every night. It's my lullaby. I uh, own the DVDs and I watch really? an episode or two every night and I always learn something about this really? nation. Really? Oh, about they're this hopeful. nation, yeah. Well, they're hopeful, so that, I like it. Good. Why not? Why <laughs> not? So my book just finished its final edit. Um, I'm doing some polishing and it actually should be available and printed and available on Amazon.com in another couple of months. Good. So we're talking about space cells and everything else in your book. What else? Uh, th- Life in a spacesuit. Yeah. <laughs> An expansion. Can you, uh, is there other, what is, I'm just curious. The book sounds so good. I want to know what else you have in there. Um, one of the um, chapters in there uh, involves the, uh, what I call the physiology of mysticism. Mm-hmm. Uh, because as a yogi, I'm fascinated with how, uh, the process of yoga, asana, meditation, and pranayama do what they say it will do, which is ultimately to silence the mind and distill the breath and sometimes even the heart from what I read and see. Now, you know, granted, I am no hurry to have any of those experiences mm-hmm. yet, uh, but I appreciate where it says to be going. So when I look at that and I look at what deep breathing will do, for instance, and when you take and hyperoxygenate your body, you form a respiratory alkalosis. In other words, your blood becomes more alkaline as the result of the hyperoxygenation and the reduction of carbon dioxide. Your body's response to that is to slow down your breath. It's just to slow down your breath. So here are the yogis saying, if you practice this, it's going to slow down your breath. So you practice this and you sit and watch your breath and now it's breathing a lot less often. It's breathing a lot more efficiently. They do the same thing with eye movement so that there's a yogic position where you uh, hold your eyeballs and press them in to help you look at the third eye and to help the uh, ocular muscles that aren't used to looking up to the third eye position. 
But in physiology, there's something called the oculocardiac reflex, which states that the sympathetic system, when it is physically pressed upon in the eyeballs, will react the same way as if you press the carotid reflex in the anterior cervical region. In other words, it'll slow down the heart. So here you have a pranayama technique that's going to slow down the respiratory rate. And here you have just an eye-pressing eyeball movement for a few minutes, which is going to slow down the heart rate. And when physiology says that something is going to happen to you in exactly the same way that the yogis say this is going to happen to you, I pay attention to that. And what I also pay attention to in terms of the book in general is language. Because one of the things I appreciate about anatomy is that most of it's Greek. <laughs> and Greek was my first language, right? My parents are from Greece. And so I find myself translating all day long. And so that the study of anatomy is really the study of, of ancient language as well. And it gives you many very interesting insights into ancient language and ancient culture. So that the yogis and the Chinese will say that the area in front of the lumbar spine or in front of the uh, triangular bone at the base of the spine are where the kundalini lives or where the tantian is um, activated and expanded. But then if you look just at simple Roman anatomy, who were not famous for their mysticism, but in ancient Rome, they call that triangular bone the sacrum. And that was, a direct, that was an indirect translation from the Greek, which is ieros, both of which mean holy or sacred. So they may not have given a story of Kundalini rising or Tantien, but the name itself implies that somewhere back there, they knew something about this. If everybody's telling the same story, which I assume they must be because everybody has to be the same in terms of physical form and in terms of spiritual energy channels and fields and abilities. So why did they all agree to call it sacrum? Um, Do you know? I mean, well, I, I think I know the answer. You mean in in West, in English now? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, for the most part, um, the... Speaking of these terms in the languages of the nation states didn't happen till the 1850s. Up till the 1850s, all scholarly work was done in Greek and Latin. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until the 1850s or so, 1840s, that the uh, school started. England had its first English-speaking college. In fact, Darwin went to that mm -hmm. college. And mm -hmm. it was from there that he met the people who were involved in the voyage on the Beagle that set him to his evolutionary theory. But the naming of terms had to be adapted in a way that would accommodate every nation's uh, used to being in Latin and Greek, mm. but with endings that would be common to whatever the vernacular demanded. So it's not called this, it may not be called that exactly in German mm -hmm. or in French or in Spanish, but if you have one of them, you'll be able to probably read an anatomical text a little bit and recognize words in foreign languages. Mm -hmm. So it was a standardizing of the terms, which mm. is, but ultimately right. keeping as much Latin and Greek as they could. Well, I was taught somewhere uh, that sacrum was the sacrum was called sacrum because sacred, because it was the last bone to deteriorate after death. Well, that's interesting. I forget where I learned it, but yeah, you know, if you follow the word back, then I was just interested to find out sacred and sacrum. Yeah, is there a relationship to that? 
Yeah, well, it would, you know, I would wonder if it would be the last bone to deteriorate because I don't know that it to would... To decompose. To decompose. It I would, should say It would that. have to make it the most dense of all the bones, uh, which it might be, except... I mean, I'm, it's hollow, but it's pretty dense in the in yeah. certain parts. You know? Yeah, it could be. But there's always skulls left over from years and years right. and years. You always find like, the skull. I want to show you how thick-headed our species is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, run around the, and see. Uh, I found a sacrum. But that's interesting. Because Nothing else. If, if the Kundalini is housed there, and if that is our sacred center, then maybe it's no coincidence that it's the last bone to um, decompose. The first bones to actually ossify are the ones in our ears, our auditory ossicles. And so they're the ones that channel all the astral sounds and all that energy. So mm. who knows if there's a relationship to that? I like to think there is, mm -hmm. but I do make up a lot of stuff. <laughs> uh, but I keep it to myself when the best I can, except when my students, I find myself bored and then I have to say, Things like Something that. Something outrageous. And then they're stuck. So they're, then they're have stuck. to ask questions. They just have to. <laughs> so all the classes you're teaching right at this point are Thai massage, correct, in Florida and Colorado. Actually, yeah, actually, I'm teaching Thai massage here in Colorado. I'm teaching uh, anatomy and physiology in Florida to massage therapists for continuing ed. Okay. And to yoga teacher training programs okay. uh, where and I teach yoga philosophy as well as anatomy. Okay. And so it, do you have a website that we can look up your classes or well, find I, you? Well, I just got it up, sort of. Okay. So, yeah, so it, there will be classes scheduled there. It's called barefootchiropractor.com. Oh, I love it. Okay, good. We'll <laughs> barefootchiropractor.com. Of course, put a link on the, our website for that. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, yeah. So we always like to have a tip of the week. Tip of the day, tip, tip of, the of the week, week you know, to, some yeah, little... Some kind of tip and... and We'd like you to impart some more wisdom to our massage therapists out there, okay. as well as ourselves. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, there are two things I would put out. The first thing is breathing. I think about breathing uh, a lot. I watch how people that's breathe. That's the first time someone yeah, said that to us. And, and yeah. that is like, you know, it's notorious how little we breathe and we allow our own body to breathe for us. So we don't think about it. And it does what's called tidal breathing. You all, most of you have heard of the term in respiratory physiology. Now, tidal breathing without thinking at a minimal rest situation and a relaxed situation moves about 500 milliliters of air per breath cycle. Now, if you begin and take a deep breath in and add that to that, and then just relax your chest muscles so you're passively exhaling, now you've added another 1,500 milliliters, or 1,000, I forget, either 1,000 or another 1,500. But then when you breathe out, most of us breathe out passively. Our chest muscles collapse down through gravity, and our diaphragm relaxes and moves up into our thoracic cavity. But when you deepen the expiration by contracting the abdominal muscles, pulling the rib cage down, and really blowing out as much air as you can, the next inspiration is going to have another 1,500 milliliters of air. So when you do a full deep breath that, in, that includes deep thoracic inspiration and full abdominal exhalation, you've given yourself 3,000 milliliters of air. You've multiplied the amount of oxygen in one breath by six times. 
And we need to do that when we're exercising. We need to do that when we're finding ourselves fatigued. Uh, we need to do that as often as we can we're remember. doing massage therapy and body work. When you're driving in your car. Mm-hmm. Not only is it oxygenation, it's, it is the key to our passive circulation. You may remember that the venous system and the lymph system do not have any propulsion from heart contraction. It moves either because skeletal muscles contract and literally pump it up. But less remembered is that they're also sucked up by deep inspiration. Mm -hmm. When you expand your chest and take a forced deep inspiration, the lymphatic fluids and the venous fluids move up and are pulled up just like a hypodermic needle will pull up fluid out of Mm -hmm. a bottle. And so you're standing in line at a store, you're bored, you're sitting in your car, all the fluids running down to your feet, you're in an airplane, it's like, oh, I can't exercise, I'm sitting. Mm -hmm. Breathe. And, you know, if you force the abdominals, you're doing crunch. You know, that's part of the thing too. You know, you're actually working those abs. So that would be the... That's a great tip. That would be the the major tip is breathing. And the second one is to keep your shoulders down. We tend in our lives have our shoulders rounded forward and up. And up. And what we need to do is keep them back and pull the latissimus dorsi so it pulls the shoulder blades down and depresses them down. You don't have to make it be hard, but you want to give that spine the ability to remember that it's upright. And when the latissimus is down, then your splenius muscles, especially those that go from your thoracics to your cervical region, will help pull the lower cervical uh, muscles back and that will help you prevent that that kind of buffalo thing that happens in old age. And all that old age thing that they tell you is necessary is only because of basically self-negligence. We care. don't know mm-hmm. how well we can be older yet. Right. Because, you know, our parents certainly weren't any model, you know. Yeah. They really weren't. There's not a lot of Jack LaLanne's around, really. No, God bless him. He's, he was he great. Really, he really, him and Lilias, he brought us onto both sides of mm-hmm. that equation. They, yeah. they both did. So it's great tips, and they do go together. Because the more the well, the better you breathe, the less tension you'll have in your shoulders and neck. And uh, once again, the book uh, "Sell Men in Spacesuits." <laughs> Life in a spacesuit. Life, Life in, in a spacesuit. Space keep and looking it. for that on barefootdoctor.com. Uh, and then when that in a couple of months. A couple of months. Oh, okay. I look forward yeah. to reading that. Thank That's you. Fabulous. Yeah. And it, it sounds like it'd be geared toward everybody, not just. Healthcare people. No, it's actually, but it is mostly geared towards healthcare and yogic people okay. and mystics. It's, and you know, mystics. it really does, you know, if you're yeah. involved with any of the energy, Qigong work or, you know, any kind of meditation, you know, it supports that in terms of physiology. And what type of people embody the, the term mystics? Um, for me, the mystical traditions, uh, in fact, the, the word for mystic actually comes from an wor- old Greek word meaning with your eyes closed. And anyone who knows about meditation knows that there's a level of it where you really want to keep your eyes closed. Um, and so for me, uh, the mystical traditions are all of the traditions in all of the religions that talk about the ways for you to know that part of yourself. So that in yoga, yoga is the science of mysticism par excellence because they don't couch it in symbolism. It's all out there. It's a science. They've been exploring this for forever. Um, in in the uh, 
Jewish traditions, we have the Kabbalah, and Kabbalah is, is, is Jewish mysticism. And when you start looking at Kabbalah and you start looking at their letter numbers and you start comparing it with what the yogis were doing with Sanskrit, all of a sudden you've got a very interesting crossover. I'm, I'm a little versed in Hebrew and I'm a little versed in Sanskrit, and so I look for crossovers all the time. And I've, and I've actually found many, although many are still looking for that. Um, I don't have a PhD scholar or anything. Um, in the Christian traditions, we have the Gnostics. We have the Gnostic traditions, uh, which were considered heresy, but they never left. You know, all the heresies never left. My mother still practices old Greek goddess religions from mm -hmm. the mountains. So mm -hmm. they never left. They just went underground. Mm -hmm. uh, in Islam, we have the Sufi tradition. You know, mm -hmm. in Taoism, in we have the Qigong and we have all of those traditions. Um, in Rumi was a Sufi, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah Rumi. Every poem he's ever written is amazing to me. Like, <laughs> he comes from a part of the universe that is all-knowing or something. <laughs> and speaks in, in Persian, beautiful, beautiful Persian terms, which is marvelous. Um, it was Yogananda turned me on to the Sufis, actually. Yogananda is my guru. He's been my guru since uh, I was 18, actually. And why I chose him was because he was a great synthesizer. He mm -hmm. wanted to synthesize science and spirituality. Mm -hmm. He wanted to he showed the commonality of Islam, Christianity, and yoga. Is mm -hmm. what he did. Yogananda is that who you're talking yes, about? Yes, Paramahansa yeah. Yogananda, who wrote the autobiography of a yogi, also worked with the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, which, like Rumi, is a Sufi treatise. That's one of the most beautiful, beautiful poems ever written. You may have heard the line: "A, a loaf of bread, a jug of wine, and thou" is one of its most famous lines. Uh, it was actually quoted in that wonderful Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton movie, The Sandpiper, oh, yeah. uh, years ago. That's, that's that. when that line became famous. And all of a sudden, people all over New York are reading the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam because <laughs> Richard Burton quoted it. It was really fun. My parents had a copy and I read it. It was it's beautiful. Uh, but Yogananda really talked about the mystical symbolism of each paragraph. And that it's not about wine and getting drunk. It's about imbibing that spiritual energy and reaching a whole nother level of awareness. Mm. Especially mm -hmm. if you make the wine yourself. Awareness. Well, now yeah. you're talking, yeah. which they all the did back then. The yeah. Right? It's, it's mm -hmm. a, you know. yeah I, I have a huge garden every summer and every time, I mean, the whole process is very spiritual. By yes. the time it gets on my plate, there's so much love mm. in my tomatoes or yeah. anything that comes out of the garden. From the seed to right. your spoon. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. It's it's loved. Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's, loved. it's loved. There's a yeah. lot of love. I'm know? coming over yeah. to your house you for love. To. Not yeah. for lunch, for love. <laughs> you know, I go to Greece and I drink the wine that, that my relatives make and it's a whole different it's a whole, high. It's, it's a, a it's different a high. high. Yeah. yeah, the man cells you know, are it's, just jumping we've from only We've only got a minute, but would you do me a favor? and just give us 20 seconds of song because you're a beautiful singer and I'd like to end the show today with that. Let me do a song called the, that, that is, that is a, it's a heart chant. And it comes from a Cherokee tradition. It's taught by Dahani Oahu, who's a lady up in the Sunray Meditation Society who basically synthesized Cherokee mysticism and wisdom with Tibetan Buddhism. Mm. Very interesting oh, very lady. Interesting I also went to college with her by accident. Okay. So uh, and as it turned out, years later, she became this teacher and it's like, wow, what were you doing? You know, anyway, so this is a heart chant. Ateshna <laughs> 
姉子子姉，姉子姉，天下啊哈，啊天下嘿那，啊天下嘿那。阿弥陀佛，阿弥陀佛，德胜啊！阿哈，阿吽。Beautiful. Thank you very much, Michael, for joining us today. Thank you for asking.、We、appreciate it very much, and I hope people listen to your our show today. Our next show will be February second. Please join us for that show. And do we know who our guest is then?、Uh, I believe、point? Michael Ham、uh, from Seattle is going to come out and talk with us. He's an instructor out there, and I'm just we're going to have a great conversation about、uh, research and other things.、Uh, okay, all things Seattle. That's great. Excellent.、Uh, Seattle. Seattle is a fun place. So he's a great guy, and we'll have a lot of fun with him. Another Michael. All right. So again, look for us at themassagepodcast dot com. Find us on Facebook and Twitter, and everybody have a lovely couple of weeks. We'll talk to you. Thank you.